Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CAUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Michaela Gill. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy and global affairs discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. The advancement of global education efforts requires the collaboration of different actors and institutions, especially in light of COVID-19. According to World Bank data, before the pandemic, 258 million children of primary and secondary school age were out of school, and the learning poverty rate in low- and middle-income countries was 53%, meaning more than half of all 10-year-old children were unable to read. The pandemic has only further exacerbated the learning crisis, with high likelihood of long-term impacts on the human capital of this generation. Educating girls and boys can boost economic growth, reduce poverty and inequality, and contributes to restoring peace and stability within any state. As well, traditional methods of education are typically lecture-style, memorization-based, and rely on recall examinations to act as absolute measurement of student learning. These traditional methods, though generally supported by parents or teachers, will often be met with low retention and high dropout rates, especially in developing countries. Today, we are joined by incredibly knowledgeable experts to discuss the evolving pedagogies and innovative interventions in the global education sector to help us understand this issue. Our first guest is Tracy Evans. Tracy worked for the Aga Khan Foundation Canada in Ottawa from 2015 to 2020 as an education program manager, managing a portfolio of gender responsive education programs across East and West Africa and in Central Asia that cut across the lifelong ladder of learning from early childhood education through to post-secondary education. In 2021, she joined Right to Play as Director of Global Partnerships where she oversees the organization's institutional relationship with Global Affairs Canada. She is constantly inspired by the learners, teachers, and parents she gets to work with, and firmly believes that education is the world's greatest asset for promoting gender equality. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tracy. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. To start us off, I'd be interested in learning more about education through unconventional avenues, specifically with Right to Play, uh, where the organization focuses on empowering children through four different types of play, games, sports, creative play, and free play. How do these different types of play play into a child's learning and retention? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a breadth of literature and evidence that really speaks to the way that play can help children learn more effectively. And when we really think about it, that just makes sense. If we teach kids in a way that they're excited about, that they identify with, or that sparks their curiosity, it only makes sense that they'll be more motivated to show up to class, actually engage with the content that's being taught to them, and that they'll retain it in the long term. With all that said, one of my favorite things about learning through play is that it actually helps children learn so many of the non-traditional skills that they really need to succeed in the world and the workforce, but that aren't really traditionally taught in schools. When we think about games, for instance, they teach us critical thinking and problem-solving skills. They put us in a situation where we know that there's a right answer or a final outcome that we're working towards, and we need to find the right path or solution to get there, so we think creatively about how to get there. Sports, on the other hand, teach us so much about teamwork, collaboration, leadership, not to even mention our own bodies and how important it is to stay healthy. 
And then you also mentioned creative play. This provides kids with the opportunity to stretch their imagination and free play gives them the freedom to explore the world around them, to exercise autonomy, decision-making over how they spend their time. So each of these life skills are absolutely critical in shaping children's minds and allowing them to grow into being you know, confident, successful, independent adolescents and adults, but they're often omitted from the curriculum that we teach kids every day in a classroom. And the other thing I'll just mention in terms of the context where I work in my capacity at Right to Play is that a lot of the um, countries and schools and classrooms where we program often face um, classroom sizes of over 100 students. That can be hard to fathom and even harder to actually execute effectively as a teacher. A lot of times the reason that they rely on rote learning is because that's the only way to have all 100 kids actually focused on once is by standing in front of the classroom and telling them, look at me. Um, but play, you know, provides them with a tool and a resource to shake that up and to actually divide children into smaller groups to allow the children who are excelling and really retaining the content to become a leader and a teacher for their peers um, and to take on that leadership role. And the children who are struggling behind, you know, might be actually more likely to learn from one of their peers than from a teacher who's standing five rows uh, away from them. So it can be a really nimble, agile tool that makes learning effective in a lot of different contexts. I was also wondering, has there ever been any pushback or criticism from families or parents, teachers, uh, community partners, or project stakeholders for these less traditional methods of education provision and improvement? Yeah, the, the short answer is definitely yes. I think it's fair to say that in some contexts, it can be challenging for parents to wrap their heads around play-based approaches to education. One common thread with parents, I think, almost anywhere in the world is that they really only want what's best for their children. And the truth is that in a lot of contexts, when a parent sends their child to school, they're having to sacrifice something else, be it um, a meal a day or you know, having to send one child over another. So there's some really hard trade-offs that are being made when prioritizing children's education. And therefore, when they walk past the schoolyard and see their children playing hopscotch or skipping rope rather than reading a book as they traditionally envision education and schooling to look like, it can be, um, confusing or concerning or even frustrating for them. So one way that we really try to respond to this challenge is to actually bring parents into play and have them see firsthand some of these what I call aha moments where their children experience learning through play. Um, there's nothing more powerful than seeing a child really understand content and seeing their eyes light up when they finally understand something. Um, and when it's through the power of play and a parent can witness that, then they tend to buy into the methodology. Teachers, on the other hand, are often a lot more convinced about the methodology and they're really excited about the trainings that they go through with us and can't wait to bring it to the classroom. But once they get there, one of the challenges that they often face is that they're being forced to address so many competing pressures from principals, from parents, from Ministry of Education that's rolling out a new curriculum. And so it can be really hard for them to find easy ways to integrate play into their day. So our job then when we're training them as Right to Play is not so much to give them this whole new tool that they need to layer on into an already crowded classroom and schedule, but rather to show them how play can let them more efficiently and effectively achieve the learning outcomes and goals that they are working towards. So we do that by looking at the curriculum that the government has laid out for them and telling them which games or specific methodologies they can use to help achieve the curriculum's objectives, but using a play-based methodology. That was great. Thank you so much. Next, I'm curious about girls' education. I know that that's a priority for Right to Play. And 
Gender equality is one of the core pillars of Right to Play, and the organization has achieved substantial and outstanding successes in improvements to girls' empowerment. And so how does the organization target girls specifically and encourage gender equality amongst students? So I view play as being an amazing equalizer and a great way to level the playing field between boys and girls. Um, Think, for instance, of a scenario where we're playing baseball or football or soccer in a schoolyard. It's actually a really easy and kind of non-invasive strategy to just assign one boy and one girl to each be captains of their respective teams. Now, without even thinking about it or knowing it, as a teacher, when you do that, you're sending a very clear message that girls can be leaders. They can steer the ship. They can coach a team. And in a lot of other contexts within that very same school setting, it might seem super unnatural to put a girl in that kind of a leadership position. Boys might be the first to raise their hands and take that position, um, or it might be a, a teacher's instinct to just go with the first hands that they see raised, and therefore boys often end up in those leadership positions. But in a sports or a game setting, um, especially with a teacher intentionally thinking about how do I make this uh, interaction more gender equal, um, you can actually dismantle barriers that you might not even notice are there. So there's a lot of different ways that play and games can create this level playing field and can um, challenge gender norms that are so embedded in our day to day and quietly without, you know, stirring a, a controversial pot or making things, um, you know, complete upheaval within the community. Uh, just set a norm that girls have a role to play, that they can occupy the space of a leader, that they have a voice to say um, what they need to say. And so it's a really effective tool in that regard. We've also seen it um, be extremely effective in just building up girls' self-confidence, their autonomy, um, in getting them out of the house and being a more active contributing member in their community. So we we leverage it in different contexts um, according to the cultural norms, and we're very cognizant to be respectful and kind of in line with cultural and traditional norms in in the context where we work. Um, But we do see it as a, a lever that we can draw on and a really effective tool for trying to make kind of small incremental changes. Thank you. What have the effects of the pandemic been with regards to partners and funding, and how do these changes cause a ripple effect to different right-to-play projects? Yeah, so the effects of COVID-19 have been immense across the entire sector. Obviously, the education industry had to pivot on a dime, and uh, there was a lack of preparedness for that. So what we did see initially was actually a very strong response and readiness from a lot of funders to either reallocate um, existing funds or mobilize for new funds that would enable the education community to respond to this crisis. Um, That meant, you know, deploying ed tech solutions when and where that was possible, or um, providing teachers with extra um, data just so they could create, send really basic SMS messages to kids at home and have phone conversations with children who needed follow-up. But in some settings, you know, it wasn't a a very tech-savvy, sexy solution um, that we were looking for, and it was more about printing booklets so kids could do their homework on an ongoing basis during weeks and then months and eventually years of lockdown. Um, So I think a lot of organizations saw that response from funders and were really grateful for it. I think in the long term, or at least the the medium term, we're going to feel the impact of it because a lot of ODA was front loaded. And now donors have, you know, spoken for their budgets for the next few years um, because they had been redirected towards COVID response. So I think we're going to probably start seeing a gap in education funding globally 
And that's something for all of us from funders to implementers to be really aware of. I think as partners in global education, we need to keep raising our voices to make sure that donors understand, you know, the crisis is not yet done. And quite frankly, we're only starting to feel the tip of the iceberg as it relates to the impacts that this pandemic is going to have on children um, over the next generation. So the need for funding is really not going anywhere. And we need to, I think, keep advocating for it and making sure that we're supporting kids to get back into classrooms, teachers to help children make up for this lost time and also deal with their own um, psychosocial needs. Um, so the, the need is great. And I, I don't think we can stop talking about it anytime soon. Lastly, I'm curious about the role of partnership in education provision. There's a multi-stakeholder environment and Right to Play has projects and offices all over the world. So what does managing global partnerships look like and how do you manage the expectations of partners for projects happening in different places with different needs and different goals? Yeah, Global partnerships really means engaging with actors all over the world. It's, it's right in the name, um, but actors at different levels and each with their own mandates and also their own agendas. Uh, so when we talk about donors, they're obviously coming with funding on the table. They are some of our best friends, um, but it's important to recognize that sometimes donors have different priorities than what ours might look like or what the Ministry of Education in a certain countries might look like. And so finding where those different actors and their areas of focus intersect and overlap, that's really uh, when global partnerships come alive. And that's kind of the sweet spot um, in, in my job is finding those synergies and opportunities to try to make everybody happy. And when those don't exist, um, we do sometimes come into a bit of a situation of negotiation. And it's really about telling either a funder, um, you know, why we think investing in perhaps a slightly different geography within a country would be more beneficial and bringing solid evidence to, to justify justify those decisions. I find a lot of the donors that I work with directly are really receptive to um, hearing about what we think should be prioritized, um, but it really comes down to having the right evidence to back up the, that rationale and that decision-making process. And where that evidence honestly comes from most of the time is local stakeholders. So as much as we're talking about global partnerships, I think engaging with local partners and having strong local partners on the ground um, who can get you the information that you need, who have strong relationships with government partners, um, is the only way to achieve the results that we're working towards as an international nonprofit organization. Uh, we have right to play offices in the 15 countries where we do programming and the vast majority of our staff are nationals, which is hugely helpful. They are trusted actors within the communities where we program. So when we come in with a new idea or an innovative solution, there's often a lot of receptivity um, and eagerness from our, our communities to take up these new interventions. But even at that, our staff are often in capital cities or regional hubs. And so we often look towards what we call CBOs, community-based organizations, really grassroots entities who are being completely run by locals who live in the villages we're trying to work with. And they become kind of an interlocutor between right to play and the community. So those CBOs and that really local footprint is also massively essential in making sure that we achieve our objectives, we're a welcomed implementer in the context where we're going. So from global all the way to local, there's a whole different range of partners, each with their own area of expertise, each with their own role to play. But each one of them is really essential in kind of putting together this whole 
global puzzle of international education and taking best in class evidence that's coming from world renowned researchers and helping it be implemented, um, you know, in small schools across thousands of villages in many countries. Thank you so much for outlining that process and the way that partnership works towards education provision for us. I think the fact that Right to Play emphasizes community-based organizations and involves them so, so much really shows in the success of the organization and the different impacts and changes that have been that have been achieved, especially since often donors or governments even forget the impact of, of local organizations and the, the different pulses that a local organization has on the community and the community priorities, even when you spoke about gender and having to keep in mind all those cultural intricacies about like different roles of men and women in society that you have to balance. So that was great. And thank you so much, Tracy, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Once again, that was Tracy Evans. Our next guest is Mary Ellen Matsui. Mary Ellen is currently the development consultant at Goodwill Industries Ontario Great Lakes, focusing on mission-critical projects surrounding performance management, impact measurement, program design, fund development, and marketing. Previously, Mary Ellen was the CEO of Atma, an accelerator for education in Mumbai, India, for 10 years. Atma empowers grassroots educational initiatives to grow, amplify, and multiply their impact to gradually change the future of education in India. Atma adopts a systematic management approach that leads NGOs to scale up, expand their reach, and dramatically increase student learning outcomes. Over the past decade, she spearheaded Atma's scale-up strategy, including its geographic expansion and growing the Atma network, a resource-sharing and collaborative platform. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mary Ellen. Hi, Michaela. So to start us off, what unconventional or creative methods have you seen that have increased outcomes for children's education in India? And do these methods ever clash with existing cultural norms in the communities? Yes, I've had the pleasure throughout my work with Atma of working with amazing nonprofits and creative educators across the country. I've seen lots of really interesting projects that have been, you know, technology driven and, and enabled by sort of like the new and trendy thing. But for me, the most impactful programs that I have seen have been those programs that have gone back to basics, have worked with the resources that are present in communities and really taken a child-centric view of the education that they're trying to deliver. And that has really meant like breaking down what exactly are they working with each child to learn and how are they moving the young people through that entire process. So one of the organizations I've had the pleasure of being part of their journey is an organization called Souls Arc. They originally started as a school that served young people and their families and, and the families of the young people who had developmental disabilities. And they had different learning struggles, different learning needs. But as they thought about like the scope of the challenges in education in India, they realized that, sure, they were working with students in Mumbai, which is a huge city that were having learning challenges and learning difficulties. But across the country, on average, and it's definitely going to be different now, even after the COVID lockdowns, but on average, the average student is two grade levels behind where they should be in their learning. And so they said, what is the difference between our students who have developmental delays and are therefore not able to perform, 
you know, in their learning and students who just have delayed learning because of just like poor education quality. And so they took that same curriculum that was very tailored, very um, modularized and broken down to very specific learning levels and took that and reimagined it, but kept the core and the fundamentals to be able to work with students in mainstream schools across the country, irregardless of whether they had a learning disability or or developmental delays, but really understanding them as an individualized learner and being able to take that curriculum that really worked with them at each level and help them develop mastery in, in different skill sets to scale. And most you know, programs that work with, with young people with disabilities have a really limited scale um, in terms of what they're able to do. And this one program has been able to move that curriculum from a setup of like 30 students to hundreds of thousands of students across India using that same curriculum and showing really substantial learning gains because of the way that they've broken down each of the learning levels. And so that to me has been, it was a, the leader of that organization is a total visionary that she was able to see it outside of the scope of, you know, the one school that she was running and what difference it could make for every student across the country. And also thinking about the student first, like really what, what does each student need? How do we break down learning for them? How do we tailor it to their needs? How do we create things that are going to serve each one of those students? And then once you have that as your initial framework, being able to develop programming and, and content and curriculum with that as the fundamental core. Thank you so much. And I think that student-oriented mindset and approach to education is so key, especially because you can come up with a an outstanding curriculum with a lot of learning goals that would benefit students, of course, but if it's not tailored or oriented towards how the student will learn or whether or not it's applicable to the student's daily life, will they be able to see it happening in front of them and apply that knowledge? All of that that goes into that student-oriented mentality that created such a great success with this program, I think is so key for scaling projects like this. I was just going to add the point about how do innovative or unconventional and creative methods clash with different cultures. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of us have gone through in our learning journey is that education typically doesn't center the, typically hasn't and traditionally hasn't centered the child in the learning process. And when parents see that kids are learning differently, that you know, there is a more creative approach to, to what's happening. It's really bucking against their expectations of what learning should look like. And we have to be respectful of that, but also bring those really important stakeholders along the journey to understand and reimagine education and what it can look like. Um, and it's not necessarily going to be that it's, you know, that rote learning that people are used to seeing or the memorization um, that, that, or like tons of homework that parents are typically, like typically want to see to understand that their, their kids are learning. And it's, it's really important to include families as stakeholders in, in the entire process. 
And I know that you mentioned cultural clashes as well. And in India, it can often be the case that families see education as kind of an investment, whereas in Canada, we see education as something that is provided. And so regardless of whether or not education is privatized, it is still often a trade-off for families to send children to school. And I would be curious as to whether or not you had any additional notes or thoughts on education as investment, how parents make that trade-off, what they see in the classroom, and how they interpret success for their children, if you've ever encountered barriers with, with families or parents when implementing these types of projects. Parents are such an important stakeholder in education in India because especially in low-income families, there is that trade-off that you mentioned. Even if they're attending a government school where fees aren't involved, there's potentially an economic trade-off for that family that they're making. And parents that are sending their kids to private school, which is honestly the preferred choice of most families because there's some perceived value there. Those families that are paying for education are paying upwards of one-third of their monthly income in school fees. That is an outstanding amount. Like it's a, it's a huge sacrifice for a family to make and something that, you know, in the context like Canada, in our sort of like universal education system, we, we really don't appreciate. And so it is really important to value parents as a stakeholder, understand that, you know, in a private environment, they are a customer. They are the one paying for the education. And how do we serve their needs and understanding as that customer, but also work with them to make sure that child is getting the best quality education. And I have worked with schools that are doing really unconventional, very child-centered, very interesting education, using different, really interesting curriculum and pedagogy and approach to, to their education. And they have really worked with families and parents to make sure that they understand what's happening in the classroom, why it's important. And then subsequently, as challenges arose, as political interests got involved, those families and those communities stepped up for those schools and made sure that they were able to continue to exist, that they were able to continue to deliver the education and the quality of education that that they had come to know and that they really wanted for their child now. Next, I'm curious to learn more about how impact measurement works in the education sector. So when working with smaller organizations where budgets are limited, how do you ensure that resources are allocated to achieve the maximum impact? So I think first and foremost, and maybe I'm just like repeating myself, is that how do you really make sure and understand, you know, whoever you're serving, whether it's an education program or whether it's an employment program, whoever you're serving, what do they need? Where are they starting from? How are you going to make your program uh, engaging and interesting to them, meeting them where they are and, and really tailoring the design of the program to that and continuously iterating on that process. So really making sure it's not just like a one and done in terms of program design, but you're continuously going back to that once you have more data and trying to improve the outcomes that you're creating for your stakeholders. And so that's really like when you're thinking about how to create impact, 
you certainly have to be doing that on a regular basis. I just spoke to one of the entrepreneurs that I used to work with and is now a good friend. And I was asking him today about like their soft skill measurement process and how they do it. And he said, every week they take a sample from all their students. They look at what skills they're seeing demonstrated, both in terms of hard skill learning, as well as soft skill learning. And then they iterate the design for the next week based on that sample. And so they're just like continuously doing that. And it's, it's really beautiful to see that a lot of, especially the younger organizations that I've been working with are very impact centric and have created systems of feedback on a regular basis to ensure their students are getting the best. What's actually interesting though, is that impact measurement itself is a relatively new topic and organizations, especially those that have been around for a lot longer, or depending on who their funders are, have not necessarily centered impact measurement and impact creation in the same way that potentially, you know, is being taught now at the monk school or is like the most cutting edge thing that we hear about in a lot of the resources that are available today. It takes a lot for organizations to like turn a program that's been running for a long time around to bring impact measurement into focus versus output measurement. And I have seen in the Indian landscape that a lot of the change in the conversation has been driven primarily by funders. So there's always going to be those like leading voices that are blazing the trail in terms of like impact creation and impact measurement. But for the general nonprofit ecosystem, the majority of them are now starting to bring this into focus in a big way because of the conversation they're hearing from funders and what their funders are asking. And so funders play that really important role in the ecosystem as well. Personally, I think that what is happening in India in impact measurement, in impact bonds, in the systems that people are developing at scale, because in India, things happen in hundreds of thousands uh, all the time, it is really cutting edge. And probably some of the most cutting edge stuff that you're going to see in international development is happening in India and is, is a place to be looking. I think that when we think about what's happening domestically in Canada and what funders are demanding, that conversation is still happening and people are still turning towards impact measurement and outcome measurement in a way that is happening differently in in other countries. I completely agree. That was great. You recently shared a video by the founder of the Oscar Foundation about gender roles in India, where he discusses the use of football to build a community for girls to discuss challenges specific to being young women in their cultures and communities. So how are initiatives such as these useful in integrating women and girls into schools in India? And what are some of the unique challenges faced by girls in the communities that you've worked with through ATMA? I'm so glad you asked about Oscar. They're such a gorgeous organization. Ashok, who's the founder there, I actually sit on the advisory board at Oscar still. Ashok started Oscar because he saw kids in his community like 
gambling and getting in trouble. And then as soon as that happened, their parents would like get them married because they felt like getting married and having responsibilities would solve the problems that the trouble that they were getting into. And so he said, okay, we need to get, you know, people together and we'll do something else aside from getting in trouble. Then, you know, people will be able to like live out their childhoods more fully. And so that's why he started Oscar. And he actually went around his neighborhood and called together kids and said, like, I'm going to start a football team. I'm going to start a football team. And he didn't think anyone would show up on the first day. And they did. And it was amazing. And he was so surprised that he hadn't even brought a football. And so that was how Oscar started. But he quickly realized no girls coming out to play. And the difference between setting up the boys team where people just came when he didn't even have a soccer ball and setting up a girls team was so stark. And he had to go around to every house, convince every family that their girls should be allowed to come out and play football with them. It challenged so many norms in that community girls like going out when they had other responsibilities at home, girls being able to wear shorts and play sports, girls being able to go out and like run and be physical was also like a real challenge. And so they had to spend a lot of time cultivating relationships in the communities, making sure that the girls were, it was considered safe for the girls to go out from their house to come to the football pitch that they were able to safely make it back home. A lot of different components went into that and they have been able to do that really successfully now for a number of years. And their girls are incredible football players. Now they have gone on to become coaches within their own teams. They are getting training from groups from around the world. They have been able to travel abroad I think a number of times to the UK to train with premier league teams, participate in international tournaments and the girls, as well as others on other teams are now getting scouted to join teams in India and some abroad as well. So it's a really incredible outcome. And the focus of Oscar has always been, you can play football, but you have to attend school. And they work with each one of their kids with football as the entry point to make sure that they are continuing their education, that they're getting the resources that they need. And they even now have like a remedial program to support students who are struggling to make it through school. But specifically integrating those girls, showing their communities what they were capable of. And now seeing the community celebrate all of their achievements has been a beautiful thing. And I've seen that time and time again across programs when girls are allowed to succeed and their families and communities are able to see that it unlocks things for other girls as well. And that sort of economic (laughs) argument that you can make to families that, you know, their girls can earn, that they can bring, you know, money back to the family and also bring so much power for themselves within the family as a result of those activities has been really incredible and powerful to see time and time again. 
we actually had one school that we were working with that was helping young women finish high school. And they actually ended up shutting down that program because the community changed so much that the girls were naturally going on and finishing high school. And so then they started a college support program. That's fantastic. Mary Ellen, you spearheaded the Atma Network as well as the Future of Impact Collaborative. So what do these initiatives entail and how did they help education NGOs in India weather the pandemic? Atma, as we've spoken about, is an organization that provides capacity building support, intensive capacity building support to nonprofits over a period of one or two years. We get to know them really in depth. And through that, we've created an incredible bank of knowledge of how nonprofits can go through this change journey, how they can build their capacities, what are things that they need as an organization so that they can grow their work, be more impactful and reach more kids. And so the Atma Network basically started as an online database where nonprofits from across the country could just access all of the knowledge and resources that we were generating. And then out of that, we created webinar series and other access to experts for those nonprofits that were part of it. And that was something that we ran for a number of years. And then when the pandemic broke out um, and we went into lockdown, it everyone remembers what that was like and like the sort of panic that went into everyone's minds, but also there was like an immediate, very visceral concern that I had, which was that most of the nonprofits that we were working with had very little money with them to be able to weather a crisis. And it was such a huge crisis. And also at the same time, the, their students, their families, their communities were in this really huge need situation where people weren't able to access the food and, and money and their livelihoods anymore. And so what we really just founded the future of impact around was that we wanted organizations to be able to thrive or survive basically the pandemic and not have to shut down as a result of, of what was happening. And so the future of impact was basically, we called up like all the intermediary nonprofit consultants that we knew. We said, get on board. (laughs) We have to help organizations pivot their models. We have to help them shore up cash. We have to help them rebudget. We need to help them cut costs immediately. Like this has to happen from day one. And so we brought together this group of people. We had about 1200 people sign up for the first conference that we ran. It just like sort of came out of nowhere. Like one day we didn't have a website. The next day we had a website and the next week we had a conference. It was just like, you know, usually months and months of planning goes into these things, but it just happened really quickly. And those people came together very fast and told us, um, it told all of our organizations how to manage through the risks that we were seeing um, in those early days of the pandemic. And that started, I think the first conference was like on the 7th of April in, in 2020. And that continued with the same idea over the next year that we wanted to bring together these experts 
support nonprofits to pivot, change, shore up, manage the risks that had uh, accumulated because of the pandemic, receive expert advice, not just from random corporate people, but from people who know their sector really, really well. And we continue to run conferences, masterclasses, and mentoring across all of 2020 through 2021. And we provided mentorship to over 120 organizations and we had 800 plus organizations join in to all of the different activities that we saw. And in terms of impact, we heard from those organizations that I think over 75 or 80% of them really felt that the resources and tools and the things that they learned through the future of impact enabled them to make tangible changes in their organizations and move through some of the challenges that they were facing. Um, So that was, you know, I think that for us, the network was like a learning that allowed us to unlock like the bigger um, impact later on through the Future of Impact Collaborative. And it was, I think also the power of the collaborative aspect bringing together all of those different players made it a really strong and powerful program and base of knowledge. I think most importantly, all of the, all of the organizations that Atma is like really regularly engaged with, they all made it through the pandemic really successfully and have continued to deliver their programming through digital means throughout the pandemic and have survived financially as well. And that from the very beginning, especially when people were doing relief work, I was very concerned that in the communities that we were serving, there was immediate, like very visceral, immediate need, like people going hungry. And we had to address that. But I was very concerned that like three months down the line, those same organizations who were there when people really needed it would be gone. And so that's what that's really what we were trying to accomplish through the Future of Impact Collaborative, yeah. Atma has worked with NGOs across India for over 13 years and even built a network for these actors, as you've mentioned. Have partnerships arisen between NGOs and why does Atma operate on a one or three year intensive partnership? Um, and how does that partnership look different between the one and three year timeframes? So I'll start with the why do we operate on a one to three year intensive partnership? So Atma engages in long-term partnerships because organizational change takes time to bear fruit, basically. So even like, for instance, if we're working on an impact um, measurement project, it'll take us potentially six months to set up the various tools how we're going to go about capturing that impact. But then it takes another year to really see how those students have gone through the year, where they got to by the end of the year, and did our systems capture that well and keep the team up to date on what was happening throughout the entire process. And so each of those things, I know all of us want things like happen quickly and we think it's just like easy to just create a solution and implement it. But really, it takes a long time to do that and to establish 
the skills in an organization or to bring in skills to an organization and, and establish those systems to really help that organization grow and flourish successfully. Throughout that three-year partnership, it does look different depending on which organization we're working with. So we always do a baseline assessment of the life stage of the nonprofit. And that's something that we have really honed as a tool. And it helps us understand where each and every organization is. Depending on where they come in, in that framework, we would tailor the partnership accordingly. We always start all of our partnerships with building out the strategy of the organization if they don't have that really clearly. And then also building the capacity, an understanding of like, okay, if these are our long-term goals to reach out to 10,000 students, say, what is the capacity that we need to have as an organization in order to be able to do that? And then that basically gives Atma our roadmap in terms of how we go about working with that organization over the next while. And potentially that's only going to take a year, but usually what we've seen is a three-year timeframe is what most organizations need to move from sort of like the, what we call a stage two. So they're established, they have some teams in place, they have a program on the ground, they're beyond a pilot to being at what we term a stage four, which is where they're like thriving um, and forming partnerships um, with other organizations and scaling and growing what they do. We have seen a lot of our organizations form successful partnerships between them. One of the partnerships that I saw really be successful was between Souls Arc, who I mentioned at the beginning. They partnered with another nonprofit called Educate Girls, who was not our partner, but another organization between um, that was working at scale in supporting girls' education across um, many states in India. And through that partnership, Souls Arc was able to scale their curriculum. And so those kinds of partnerships where you bring together strengths. So we have like curriculum and pedagogy on one side, and then we have a very logistically strong on the ground organization like Educate Girls. And then we brought them together to create those really incredible learning outcomes coupled with getting girls enrolled and staying in school. So those you know, it just created such like a perfect, a perfect coming together for the impact um, that they were trying to create for, for those, those young women. Thank you so much, Mary Ellen, for joining me today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Once again, that was Mary Ellen Matsui. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss the topic of evolving pedagogies and innovative interventions in the global education sector. Today's show was produced by myself, Michaela Gill. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy and global affairs issues, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in to next week as we continue to take public policy and global affairs discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.